I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and we're going to finish off this chapter tonight, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 marks the end of a major section in the book of Romans, and we're going to see how the Apostle Paul concludes this section. Romans chapter 8. Our text is going to be verses 31 to 39, but to get a running start, let's start in verse 28, where we were last week. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. On January 20th, 1956, Life magazine, a secular magazine, published an article with this title. Go ye and preach the gospel, five do and die. This article told the story of Jim Elliott and his four friends, missionaries to Ecuador. Uh, Ed McCulley, uh, Roger Udarian, Nick Saint and Pete Fleming, all in their late 20s or early 30s. Jim Elliott had gone to Bible college. He went to Wheaton. He had studied Spanish there, and then he had done a three-year stint as a missionary in the jungles, and this prepared him for this one trip now to Ecuador with his four friends. Uh, he would now be setting up camp with these four other missionaries in territory that the dangerous and uncivilized Indian tribe known as the Alcas lived in. 
No one had ever heard the gospel in this tribe, and Jim Elliot was excited to tell them about Christ for the first time. It would be an exciting week of Elliot's life, and it would be his last. Nick Saint was also a pilot, and he came up with a way to fly a, a small plane over the Alka tribe and to lower a bucket to the people with gifts inside. And so they would put food in this bucket, they would put gardening supplies, and they would give toy airplanes just to show them what an airplane was and to make them not afraid of airplanes. Uh, the gifts were well received by these Indians and uh, the Indians eventually even started putting gifts themselves in the bucket for the missionaries to retrieve. Uh, the missionaries also used an amplifier from the airplane to speak out friendly Alka phrases. After many months, uh, the missionaries decided that it was time to meet the Alkas face to face rather than just flying over in an airplane. So they landed on the beach and they built a tree house. After four days, an Alka man and two women appeared. Uh, they came to spend time with the missionaries and the missionaries were able to cook a meal for them and uh, they were able to speak and have a friendly conversation. The man even uh, agreed to go on the airplane and had a trip up and flew around the area and then the missionary said, you know, it would be great if you would bring some friends next time. So let, let's do this again and bring some more people from your tribe. For the next two days, the missionaries waited for the other Alkas to return. And finally, on day six, two Alka women walked out of the jungle. Uh, Jim and Pete were so excited that they jumped out of the treehouse and uh, waited in a river to, to cross over to get to them. But as they got closer to these two women, they could see that their faces were not friendly, hostile even. And just as they were seeing their faces, they heard a loud shout from behind them. And behind them had entered into the river Alka warriors with their spears held high. And in that moment, Jim Elliott reached for his pistol a few weeks before, uh, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, had asked him, do you intend on ever using that pistol? And he had responded to her, we will not use our guns. Why? His wife asked. Because we are ready for heaven, but they are not. Well, in a split second, Jim Elliot stuck with his conviction, uh, took his hand off his pistol, and all, all the missionaries were speared to death. For those of you who know the story, you know that it doesn't end there. Uh, this was just the beginning. Uh, God used this tragic incident in, incident in so many ways to bring the gospel to not only this tribe but around the world. Uh, I would run out of time, and we would go all night if I could list out all the gospel opportunities that came from this. Uh, one, and maybe the main one, the most famous one, was that two years later in 1958, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, and Rachel Saint, Nate's sister, bravely, uh, courageously, this is crazy, but they moved to the Alka village to live among the people who had killed Elizabeth's husband and Rachel's brother and shared the gospel with them. Uh, by God's grace, many in the tribe were converted. 
Uh, Steve Saint, Nick Saint's son, also lived among them and helped them build an airport and a hospital. According to the Billy Graham Center archives, at least two of the men who had participated in the martyring of the missionaries also were saved and traveled to Berlin in 1966 to give their testimonies at the World Congress on Evangelism. Uh, this story is famous. It's been told many times through Elizabeth Elliot's book, The Shadow of the Almighty, and Through the Gates of Splendor. Uh, it's been told in a documentary called End of the Spear in 2005. And then there's this article that I read in Life magazine, a secular magazine that spread the word about these men who were willing to die for Christ that really gripped the non-Christian world with a story like this and inspired countless people to open up their mouths and preach the gospel, inspired many more to travel as missionaries and proclaim Christ. During his life, Jim Elliott had spoken many times about his longing for more people to become missionaries, but in his death, he probably inspired more missionaries than he ever could with his life. Now, I want to go back to the height of the drama, go back to the river, uh, as Jim and his missionary friends are wading toward, toward those two women, hear the shout of the warriors behind them with their spears raised high, hand on his pistol, having the conversation with his wife weeks before, and resolving in his heart, I'm not going to use my gun, because we are ready for heaven, but they are not. What made Jim Elliot Jim Elliot? He was ready for heaven. He knew that even though he was going to get speared in just a few seconds, he was on his way to heaven. He had confidence, conviction, and certainty about his salvation and his hope of heaven drove the trajectory of his entire life all the way up to the point where he was killed. Well, tonight as we finish Romans chapter 8, we're going to see confidence, conviction, and certainty about salvation. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul wrap up his final thought in Romans chapter 8 by saying, For I am sure... If you have an NASB, it says it even more strongly, for I am convinced. We've been studying chapter 8, and we've really seen that the entirety of this chapter is about assurance of salvation. It's a chapter that began with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. Our salvation is secure. Now, Paul writes about assurance in our text in a pretty unusual way. You probably noticed when we were reading, he's not making a, a straight argument uh, using statements. He's using rhetorical questions, seven to be exact. And by using these rhetorical questions, he's not so much seeking an answer to the questions, but he's seeking to advance his argument. He's not uh, so much interested in eliciting an answer, but eliciting a, a reaction, even an emotional reaction. He's writing in this style to move our hearts and to move our wills. He's trying to persuade us to accept not only that this is true, but that this is compelling, that this is transforming, 
and this is beautiful. Therefore, it's got to change you. It's got to do something to you if you understand the truth in this text. You see, assurance of salvation leads to boldness in the Christian life. But negatively, a lack of assurance will lead to timidity and stagnation in your spiritual life. Assurance changed Jim Elliott's life, and I pray that it'll change yours tonight as well. Uh, one of the blessings that I have in, uh, as, as the shepherd of this ministry is a lot of one-on-one conversations that I've had with you, being able to uh, counsel you and point you to the Word of God and uh, hear what's on your heart. And in all these conversations that I've had with GeoSeers, I would say easily, easily, one of the top three most common issues that I'm asked about is the assurance of salvation. Uh, either it's the GeoSeer, him or herself, or they're asking for a loved one, a family member or a friend. Maybe they were asked about it and they didn't know how to counsel that person. And so this is certainly a common issue, uh, one that many of you have faced or will face in the future to have doubts about your salvation. And even if you are blessed and you never struggle with the assurance of salvation, I can almost guarantee that you're going to come across someone who will. And they're going to ask you a question about this. And here we have a text that is so important, uh, so helpful on this issue of assurance of salvation. Uh, assurance is certainly a, a complex issue, and there are many passages that speak to this that will give us the, the full counsel on the topic of assurance. But this is a huge piece. Uh, this is an important piece. So let's look at Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to answer three questions tonight. And if you can answer these three questions, uh, you're going to grow in your assurance of salvation. But if you can't answer these questions in the way that Paul does, then you may find yourself in a fog, in a cloud of doubt, thinking to yourself, am I really saved? So let's, let's answer these questions biblically. First, can God ever be against us? Can God ever be against us? This is the first question that Paul asks in verses 31 to 32. Verse 31 begins, what shall we say to these things? These things refers back to the five things that Paul has articulated about a believer's salvation in verses 29 to 30. We call these five things last week as we studied them, the five links in the golden chain of salvation. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. First of all, foreknowledge. We are foreloved, chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be in a special, intimate relationship with him. And then predestination uh, not just predestination in general, but as you can see, predestination to be conformed to the image of his son. In verse 28, we saw that all things work together for good to those who love God. And the good doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be comfortable, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be easy, doesn't mean that you're going to get everything to go the way you want it to go. What we saw was that verse 28 is defined and elaborated on by verse 29. 
29. That verse 29 gives us the good. God causes everything to work together for good means that everything in this life, the good, the bad, the mundane, the painless, and the painful, move the Christian along the road in Christ-likeness. That God will use everything in your life for a greater good than you were even thinking about. A higher good, and that is being sanctified, being more like Christ, learning to love like him, care like him, sacrifice like him. Third, we saw that we are called, the effectual calling as theologians call it. The king of the universe has summoned us and we have responded in faith. Justified, we have been declared right in the eyes of God and forgiven of all of our sin. Glorified, we have the hope of heaven and being with him in all his glory forever. So it's about these things, these five particular things that Paul is referring to when he says, what shall we say to these things? If these things are true, if God really has done these things, then what shall we conclude? God is for us. That's what we conclude. And friends, that is some of the sweetest words in the entire Bible. Music to our ears that God is for you. But on the flip side, some of the most terrifying words that you could ever hear is God is against you. That almighty wrath and judgment is pointed at you. But here we have the sweet words. We have the good news. This is the natural conclusion to verses 29 to 30. He's foreknown you, predestined you, called you, justified you, and will glorify you. If that's the case, he's clearly for you. He's clearly on your side. So when God is for you, who can be against you? Well, that's a great question, Paul. I can think of some things. In fact, you can think of some things. Look at verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, those are some bad things. Those things are very much against me. But what Paul is actually asking in this rhetorical question is, what can successfully stand against you? No one is stronger than God, and if you have him in your corner, you're not losing the fight. If God is for us, it doesn't matter who is against you. Uh, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now Paul gives gospel truth in two different ways for emphasis. First, negatively, he did not spare his own son. Secondly, positively, he gave him up for us all. Uh, any father would want to spare his own son. Notice the word own, uh, emphasizing the love that God has for his son, Jesus Christ. Twice in the earthly ministry of Jesus, uh, once in Matthew 3 at his baptism and once in Matthew tw uh, 17 at the transfiguration, the father calls Jesus my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He loves his son. This is my son. This is my only son. 
He only had one. And he gave him up. I got three sons. And I couldn't imagine giving up even one of them for anything. God had one. And he gave him up for us. How great is his love for us to do this for us? And not just giving up his one and only son for anybody, but giving, it up for, giving him up for us, for sinful, rebellious people, those who had sinned to his face and broken his commands. How great is this love in the gospel for us? Notice it's in the active voice, not passive. He, it's not he allowed him to be given up, but the active. He gave him up. And because he demonstrated such love, we can be confident that he will graciously give us all things. Now here we have a classic argument from the greater to the lesser, the hard to the easy. If he already did the hardest thing in giving up his one and only son, then he will certainly do the easier things to ensure that what he wanted to accomplish in giving us his son will be accomplished. An argument from the greater to the lesser, the hard to the easy. If you can climb Mount Everest, then you can come visit me in Hedrick. <laughs> Imagine your, your wealthy friend buys you a brand new car. Leave your wallet at home. Come with me to the car lot. Pick out whatever you want. It's good to be friends with some of these smart GOCers because they may be this friend one day. Pick out whatever you want. You pick out your, your, your favorite car. Can't believe I got my dream car. Uh, all the extras that go with it, can't believe it. Your friend pays for it on the spot. Suitcase full of cash. You drive away in the car and you're going home you realize that the car actually came with very little gas. And so you've got to pull into a gas station, and you get out of the car. You're about to pump the gas. You realize, oh, don't have my wallet. Told me to leave my wallet at home. Hey, uh, sorry to ask you, but you, know, you think you could just pay a few gallons of gas, and, uh, and then we'll get, our, get on our way home. Imagine if your friend says, oh, can't believe that. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself an Uber, and I'm going home, and you can just stay here at this gas station. You can wash people's window and try to get some money that way. Get your own gas. That would be so strange. Uh, because he has already shown that he's willing to give you the greater gift, and why won't he give you the lesser gift? Plus, he's already shown his character, that he loves you a lot, that he cares about you a lot, that he would give you this car, and so leaving you abandoned at a gas station simply is inconsistent with his character, and he just won't do it. Well, in the same way, God has already given us the greatest gift, uh, the, the, the most costly gift in his son, because he wants us to be saved, and he wants to see us in heaven. He wants to bring us all the way to glory, and so certainly he will do whatever else is necessary. He will do all these smaller things that are necessary to make sure that we will get all the way to heaven, that we'll get all the way to glory. He will not leave us on the side of the road and abandon us. Plus, he has already proven in his character. He has proven by giving you his son that he will do anything. He's already paid the highest cost. 
He is for you and not against you, and he has proven it once and for all in the death of his son. So the first question, can God ever be against us? No, he's already given you his son. His son, his love has been proven. He is always for you and will forever be for you. Second question, can anyone ever condemn us? Can anyone ever condemn us? Verses 33 to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's important to note that Paul uses the word elect. It's not just who shall bring any charge against Christians or against believers. He chooses the word elect. He chooses the term that highlights God's responsibility, that highlights God's power, this rock-solid term that conveys absolute security. And you know, another, another common question I get is uh, about the doctrine of election. Has God chosen me for salvation? And, and hopefully, in the ministry of our church, uh, you have seen that this is a biblical doctrine, that God is sovereign over salvation. But I hope you don't stop there. I hope you don't stop there. I hope you don't stop at just election is biblical, but I hope you see that election is awesome. And one reason that it's awesome, one reason that this doctrine should be a treasure to you is because it affirms the assurance of salvation. If you have been chosen from the very beginning by Almighty God, you are secure. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life before time began, what are you going to do to erase that? What are you going to do to undo what God has written? Election means that you are saved forever if you are in Christ. And here Paul is saying that if the greatest being, the the highest power has elected you, then no one, including yourself, is powerful enough to unelect you, to unchoose you. Paul then goes on to say, it is God who justifies who is to condemn. If the cosmic judge has slammed down his gavel and declared not guilty, no one can overturn that verdict. The Supreme Court can overturn the rulings from district courts, but not vice versa. The Supreme Court is the highest court in the land, and God's court is the highest court in the universe. And whatever verdict proceeds from his court will stand and no one can overturn it. If he says, as he said in verse one of this chapter, there is no condemnation that is final, there will never be any condemnation. And then verse 34, Paul quits with the rhetorical questions for a while and simply gives a direct statement. And because he changes the style of his writing, it really puts the spotlight on this statement Uh, This direct statement. No more questions, just plain direct teaching. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ Jesus 
died, giving us his righteousness. Galatians 3.27 says we are clothed with Christ, that we are wrapped in the robes of his righteousness. And so for someone to accuse us, to try to condemn us, uh, to try to poke holes in us, that is to try to condemn the righteousness of Christ. But Christ's righteousness is whole. Christ's righteousness is complete. And so when you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, there is no one who can condemn you. Christ not only died, but was raised. He didn't stay dead, didn't stay in the tomb. He is alive. And because he's alive, that means that he's doing something and he is somewhere. We see that both here. He is at the right hand of God, right next to his father, and he is doing something. He is interceding for us. Why does he need to intercede? Why does he need to pray and petition to the Father? Well, it's because as we find out in other passages that there is an accuser, Diablos, a name for Satan, means the accuser. Revelation 12.10, the accuser of the brethren. As you've seen already, Paul is using this language of the courtroom, bringing a charge, an explicitly judicial term, and then justifies and condemns these two antonyms here. Uh, the image is that you are in a courtroom and you are on the hot seat. You are the defendant. And Revelation 12.10 tells us that there is a prosecutor and his name is Satan that he accuses you of sin. And he's right. He has brought exhibits A through Z of all the sins that you have committed in your life and you have no defense. Uh, you, you sit condemned. And so Satan, the prosecutor, says there's just, there's just no way we can call this guy innocent. There's no way we can set this guy free. And you can say nothing. But there's one more character in the courtroom drama. And it is your defense lawyer. His name is Jesus Christ. He stands at that moment of condemnation and says, there is no condemnation. This man is righteous. Let him go free. And I imagine Satan in his prosecutor slimy suit laughs at that point. What are, you, what are you talking about? Let him go free. I got exhibit A through Z here. You want to play the movie of his life on this screen? Let, let's talk about the sins. Let's just talk about last week. Let's just talk about high school. Oh, we got evidence. He's condemned. Why in the world can we declare him right? And Jesus shows his wounds. Yes. This is a sinner. But we can't condemn him because I was condemned. Because I stood in his place and took the punishment for him. Because I have forgiven him of all of his sin. 
And Jesus wins the case. You can't punish him because I already took the punishment. Can anyone ever condemn us? No. Because Christ was already condemned in our place. God has already accepted his sacrifice and declared us right. And Christ and his wounds will forever plead for us before the Father's throne. Question number three. Can God ever stop loving us? Because if he can, then we have no assurance. And we'd have to work. And we'd have to get saved over and over again every day. Can God ever stop loving us? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 35. Our assurance is found in the unbreakable love of Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on Romans, we are climbing a grand staircase here, and here we have reached the top step. Here we have Paul on the top step declaring in a loud voice, throwing the gauntlet down. Can anybody or anything separate a true Christian from the love of Jesus? And Paul waits an answer and he waits and he waits but it's silence so paul offers some candidates himself what about tribulation distress persecution famine nakedness danger or sword if a christian were to face these extreme trials would it mean that god has abandoned him because these trials will come he bolsters this point that trials will come in verse 36, where he quotes Psalm 44, 22. Yes, you will face persecution. Yes, get ready for tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, even the sword, even execution, because the norm of the Christian experience is like being a sheep that is led to slaughter. That is the norm. That is what it's like to be a Christian, being a sheep lined up, marching toward the slaughterhouse to have your throat slit. So, when you go through that, does it mean that God doesn't love you anymore? Does it mean that he's abandoned you? Does it mean that you are pushed far away from him? Verse 37 gives us the answer. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No. In all this suffering, we may look like we're losing, but we actually win. We win. We're victorious. But then there's more. To win would be to be a conqueror. But here we're called more than conquerors. Hyper nikao. Hyper uh, is the prefix given here, an intensive. Uh, we are hyper conquerors. We over conquer. We are super conquerors. Well, what does this mean? Well, we have a hint here because Paul says in verse 37, in all these things, we've talked about all things. Uh, it makes us think back to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all 
things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, verse 29 defines this good. God causes all things, including the bad, including the difficult, for good, namely to push you toward Christ-likeness, to make you more like his son, to sanctify you. So to conquer is to defeat the enemy. If you're in battle and you have a conquest, you won. You defeated the enemy. You, you may have slain them all. So what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Well, how can you do more than defeat the enemy? How can you do more than slay them all? Well, you can capture the enemy. And you can now use them to fight for you. To be a part of your army. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror. So all these bad things, as, as, as persecution ramps up on the UCLA campus, as you get older and face adult life, adulting is hard, as they say, and you have more suffering in your life, God doesn't just bring you through these things. A God doesn't just neutralize these threats. He captures them. And he uses them by putting them on your side to work for you, to work for your good, uh, to conquer this battle of Christ-likeness, that these bad things would be now on your side pushing you toward Christ. You know the Joseph story. Brothers hated him, jealous of him, threw him in a pit, sold him in slavery, but this all leads to Joseph becoming the second in command in Egypt and having this plan to have food during the famine, essentially saving Israel, including the very brothers who hated him. And the conclusion from all of that is he meets his brothers, forgives them, Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are here today. God is able not just to neutralize Joseph's enemies, not just to neutralize the evil, not just to make the evil go away, but to use it for good. So there are many things that God can use for our good. The list in verse 35, for instance, in these, instead of these trials pulling you away from Christ, they bring us closer to him Instead of trials weakening our faith, they strengthen our faith. Instead of trials pushing us backwards in our sanctification, they push us forward in our Christ-likeness. Instead of trials, nakedness, peril, or even the sword conquering us, God uses them to help us win the battle for greater Christ-likeness. And that's how we overwhelmingly conquer, how we are more than conquerors. And then verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For I am sure. NASB, for I am convinced. The Greek word speaks of having a settled, unalterable conviction. And here's a phrase in Greco-Roman oration that signals that the speaker is about to get to the bottom line. 
Here is the killer line. We've worked through all the calculus, and now we have come to the equal sign. Don't miss this. Uh, Paul employs a device known as merism, and it is giving pairs of things to indicate totality, uh, to give you the, the full spectrum. So if you say, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention? Uh, you're asking for the attention of everybody. If you say, I worked night and day, that means you just worked around the clock. You never stopped working. And that's what we have here. We have these pairs to show the comprehensive nature of what cannot separate us from the love of God. First of all, you have death and life. Death looks like it separates us from Christ. They put you in a box. They put the box underground. They throw dirt on the box. Seems like it's over. But actually, in death, there is the great victory that you are now fully like Christ and you have him fully and forever. Life, there are many things in this life that seem to separate us, but even though life can separate you from your money, your dreams, your health, your friends, can't separate you from the love of God. Angels or rulers, uh, another pair uh, these strong spiritual beings, way stronger than you, even they cannot pull you away from the love of Christ. Uh, things present or things to come, nothing in time, powers, no energy or force, height or depth, nothing in space. And then, just for good measure, nor anything else in all creation. Let me make sure not, uh, nothing is left out here. There is just absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Uh, theologians call this the doctrine of perseverance. And I get that. We persevere to the end. We, we run through the finish line. But uh, a better way of thinking about this, a better name for this doctrine, would probably be preservation. Because this is about God. This isn't about you. God is holding on to you Ultimately, he will hold you fast, and that is the reason that your salvation will endure. That is the reason you will persevere. Uh, I remember in all my time at Grace Church, I've heard Pastor John say this many times. If I could lose my salvation, I would. Something along those lines. If it were up to me, I would lose my salvation. And I always think, oh, man, John MacArthur says that? Like, What, what chance do I have? If it's up to us, we're going to lose it. If it's up to us uh, being a good person, staying saved, keeping close to God, we're going to lose it. We may last a few days, a few weeks at best. But praise God, it's not about us. It's not about our strength. Salvation is held by him and him alone, by grace and grace alone, so that our confidence rests in him and him alone. Nothing you can do Nothing that can be done to you will make him turn his back on you and say, I'm done with you. Now, please read carefully how this love is described. Look at the end of verse 39. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God here is described not as some generic, nebulous, bland, feel-good, warm fuzzies, 
It's a specific love. It's a specific love in Jesus. Jesus shows us how much God loves us. The cross is a symbol that leaves no doubt in our mind that he loves us deeply. This is a love that is demonstrated. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a love that experienced in the doctrine of adoption, as we've been looking at in Romans chapter 8, where we cry, Abba, Father. This is a love that is proven when he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So can God ever be against us? No, he's already given you his son, and he's proven that he is for you and will always and forever be for you. Can anyone ever condemn us? No, because Jesus was already condemned in your place. Can God ever stop loving us? No, nothing will separate us from this love. And if you're not a Christian here today, or if you do struggle with the assurance of salvation, you're not sure that you have this love, uh, I ask that you would do some deep thinking tonight, that you would take some time, either here or back in your room later tonight, to sit down and do business with God. Close the door and say, is my faith real? God, have I come to you? Have I experienced this love? Because this is what we were made for. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And I think you see that even in your friends. Uh, because people are looking for love in so many different places. Uh, they they want to find this fulfillment of being loved in a boyfriend, in a girlfriend, uh, in a friend. Uh, everybody is longing for this person that will never let you down. The one who will be there for you all the time. And the dangerous thing of, of leaning on someone as a crutch like that is that they're going to let you down and they're going to disappoint you. And at the risk of sounding cheesy, I think what you're trying to do when you do that is you're trying to fill the Jesus-shaped hole in your heart with a person. And it's just never going to work. You will never find a love like this. And so if, if you're not sure that this love is yours tonight, there is nothing more important for you to do than to figure this out. And if you need help with that, please don't take off right away, but, but grab a geoseer and ask them whatever question you may have about that. I call you, I beg you to come to Christ tonight and experience this love that will set you on a course of living with Jesus Christ, an adventure of a lifetime that continues on into heaven forever. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I, I ask that you would help us to experience more of this love, uh, that we would have greater assurance for those of us who are in you, uh, to know that there is no condemnation and that the good shepherd holds us in his hand and we can't slip out. And Lord, I ask that for those who don't know Christ tonight, uh, they would see him in all his beauty and all his glory and all the uh, amazing love that he offers in his death and resurrection. Pray for us, Lord, as a, a ministry, and even as the year winds down, that we would be bold in proclaiming this message. God, I pray that your love would, would convict us and change us, and that 
understanding uh, the security of our salvation will convict us and change us into bold proclaimers of the gospel. God, I pray that our, our comfort and our peace, knowing that you are forever faithful, will open up our mouths to preach Christ, that it will cause our heart to well up with love for the lost, where we just cannot stay silent. We do this by your grace. Motivate us from the inside out. Give us strength by your spirit to be faithful in all things, and may this faithfulness come from this blessed assurance of being yours and yours forever. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.